Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, head of Greater China Sovereigns at Fitch Ratings. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Long Chen, co-founder and partner at Plenum, an independent research firm specializing in Chinese politics and economics. Long is based in his hometown of Beijing and writes extensively on China's monetary policy, exchange rate policy, banking system, and financial markets. Before establishing Plenum in 2019, he spent around six years as the China economist at GavCal Dragonomics, which is how we first met. Long, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. There is certainly a lot going on in China at the, at the moment, in particular, the Omicron outbreaks in Shanghai and other cities, and the impact this is having on the Chinese economy. And I know that you and the Plenum team have been tracking COVID-19 control measures implemented by cities across China in recent months, and they do vary quite significantly in terms of the locality. So I was wondering if you might be able to share with us in your own research, what the current landscape looks like across the country, and maybe if the restrictions in your own analysis are still on a rising trend, or if we're now currently at or past the peak. Yeah, I think compared with a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, we are below the peak. Uh, we have passed the, the worst point. For example, I, I, we track like the top 50 cities in China by GDP. And some 30 of them have introduced this or that restrictions over the past months. But in the past week or so, I think most of them were lifting restrictions, while a few of them reimposing or like, you know, intensifying restrictions. So it looks like, you know, the trend is we're a little bit better at the margin. But of course, it's far from normal. If if you're talking about when can we get back to where we were, say, on March 1st, I would say, you know, there, there's still a big distance because Shanghai, of course, is still, you know, in a very bad shape. And actually, I have team members in Shanghai and they've been locked up for at least three weeks, starting from April 1st. And there's just no indication on the horizon that when they can be free, you know, because their communities, their buildings just keep reporting positive cases. I guess it would be very interesting to hear your own insights into how you're compiling uh, some of the public health data that you're collecting in terms of tracking the individual restrictions that different localities are facing. As I understand it, these guidelines vary greatly by city and even within specific areas. So I suppose it must be quite labor intensive for you to keep track of it all. Yes, it's very labor intensive. You know, you know. of course, I know my colleagues do that. I do that myself as well. And we also compare that with some data. For example, we track this daily subway passenger turnover. Uh, so that gives us some sense, okay, what exactly is going on in all the cities? We have probably, uh, I think, 40 cities data on that. And of course, you know, the, the biggest thing is, because a lot of restrictions are between no restriction and uh, full lockdown like Shanghai, right? So we have to decide what kind of restriction there really is, like uh, how many people they really affect, and then what's the trajectory. So it, I think it is a little bit arbitrary at some point, but we, we try to be as precise as possible. And often my, my methodology is I, I call people I know who lives in that city or I know their family lives in that city. So that's my way. It's very, as you said, very labor intensive. But I think by only doing that, you can be as accurate as possible. 
Yeah, I, I fully understand and sympathize with that very labor-intensive research process you have to do. And mm. just for the benefit of people that are listening, uh, we're recording now on April 22nd. It's obviously a very fast-moving situation. So these things change on a daily or even weekly basis. And I also have to say that, yeah, it's speaking to people in the mainland. That's really the best way that, in, in, in my experience, I've been able to a, a very rudimentary understanding of, of the variety of restrictions or lack thereof. You know, I talked to a old friend of mine in Shenzhen a few weeks ago, and I was sort of following the news. I was under the impression that Shenzhen just had a one-week lockdown, but you know, it turns out it really varied by even neighborhood. And he happened to be in a neighborhood that was locked down for five weeks. Yeah. Uh, but I was unaware. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's pretty interesting how localized, uh, even to the neighborhood level, these, these uh, restrictions can be. Yeah, that was the idea. I mean, the Beijing actually asked all the localities to be as precise as possible. You know, especially you know, that's you know, how they learned uh, last year. Like Shanghai was a role model for doing that, for for being really, really precise. Only like lockdown one uh, store. Like they were famous for that in this January, just uh, three uh, yes, months ago. I remember that. And people saw this is the smallest uh, medium risk area in China. And then people saw these Shanghai guys really great, and they're using scientific methods, locating uh, this uh, high risk, uh, mid risk area, and then so the rest of people in the city basically uh, everything is fine, right? But now I think unfortunately, uh, the big change is people realize what Shanghai did in March was too little, too late, and then as you just mentioned, the Shenzhen model now is praised, being they were quick to lock down, uh, but people then I think in Shanghai were hesitating to lock down, but Shenzhen just decided to do it quickly. So as a result, Shenzhen only locked down for one week for most of the people, right? Shanghai, you know, I, I also know someone has been locked down since like mid around March 20th or 21st. So for them, like almost a month. Uh, and even for the majority of the population, it's already over three weeks, right? So, you know, there's a big change. And now I think a lot of local governments are just doing quick lockdown and mass testing as quickly as possible. And this is certainly going to, you know, I think affect the economy, uh, you know, in a quite a quite a big degree. So, is your diagnosis of drawing comparisons between Shanghai and Shenzhen? It's essentially that the lockdown in Shenzhen was quick, and that in Shanghai there was some delays, and that was the main contributing factor to why the situation got escalated out of hand. Is yeah, that- I think there's a the big debate about Chinese approach is that okay, whether you know China should stick to the zero COVID policy or not, right? So people outside China basically say, you know, this is unsustainable, it just doesn't work. And the proof why it doesn't work is look at Shanghai, it doesn't work, right? And then people who who still think zero COVID policy works, of course, mostly in the mainland, and they point to Shenzhen, and they will say, see, that works. And the Shanghai failure is because Shanghai used the wrong way. So it's not because this policy is a problem, it's, it's the tools you deliver this policy uh, were problematic, right? And then they point to successful models like Shenzhen. Well, I guess this is a debate that's going to be going on for quite some time, and perhaps there'll be other examples that people point to in, in making those arguments. And I, and I do want to get your take about sort of the big picture on dynamic zero COVID. But before that, uh, let's talk a little bit about the economy. Hmm. Uh, so we've already gotten a little bit of flavor of the economic costs of the pandemic-related restrictions in the Q1 GDP data release, uh, which has 
those of us that follow China's economy are aware there was clearly a significant dip in consumption-related activities in March, uh, but that was sort of counterbalanced by pretty strong performance in January and February, as well as continued property market pressures. So I guess it seems pretty clear at the moment uh, that these trends are going to deteriorate further in April, uh, given the current state of restrictions. So I'd be curious to know, in your view, how are you reading the latest economic outturns out of China? And how big of a toll do you think the, the lockdown, particularly in Shanghai, but also in other cities, are having on the economy as a whole? Yeah, I guess you know, things are pretty bad, right? I mean, if you saw the March data, I mean, that was already quite bad. Retail sales fell by 3.5% on a year-on-year basis. That's the first year-on-year contraction in a year and a half. And then to a lot of people's surprise, industrial value added looked pretty solid, right? Up 5%, slowing from January, February, but 5% increase is really something you know, we can't really complain, but I guess some people would argue that this, you know, you look at the detailed breakdowns and you think, okay, can we really derive 5%? But regardless, if April, everything will be much worse, right? Because even the factories could not produce. The automobile sector clearly is the biggest victim, right? Because both Jilin province and Shanghai city are the important economic hubs for, for the automobile industry. Right. Volkswagen has one of the earliest joint venture in Changchun, uh, capital city of Jilin, and it has another one in Shanghai. Of course, Tesla has, is also in Shanghai, and then the top Chinese producers are also in these cities. So this is uh, you know, screwed. Even the automakers are not based in Jilin or Shanghai. They had a very hard time because you know, a lot of the auto parts makers are based in these areas. So they couldn't get the components and they could not assemble a car. And we saw a lot of these complaints from, from like the CEOs of the electric car vehicles uh, companies. You know, this is really uh, affecting like I think everybody. And I would say like in April, probably see both retail sales and uh, you know industrial value added in negative territory. Much bigger decline in retail sales than, than IVA. But, you know, both will look really terrible. I think this will be the worst we've seen since February 2020. We already saw Chinese import in March fell on a year-on-year basis. That's also the first decline, you know, in a year and a half or so. And probably April will be worse. And then, you know, of course, the automobile supply chain is not just Chinese, also global. The semiconductor supply chain, like mobile phone supply chain, is pretty, not so much global, but at least it's quite Asian, right? They rely on a lot of, like, you know, the imports from South Korea, Japan, and, and Taiwan. So uh, this is, you know, going to be a big hit. I think, you know, this Chinese slowdown, uh, especially since it's happening on the East Coast, uh, is going to affect, uh, you know, at least the regional economy uh, quite a bit. One thing I think we've all noticed for the last several weeks is that many forecasters have been revising down their China GDP growth projections for this year to something that's really substantially below the government target of about 5.5% at the moment. Uh, what is, or do you have a forecast uh, for this year at present? And, and at this stage, do you think the government target is achievable? We don't do these models. I personally uh, don't have the targets. You know, I, I think the people at the IMF or bank and uh, I think all the investment banks, they, they run much more complicated models. They have a pretty good idea about where things are. The target was around five and a half, right? So in the beginning, I thought it doesn't really have to be precisely that number. If you were, say, 5.1%, they could still say, hey, we reached the target because it's around anyway. 
But it's always a question, how far can you go, right? Is 4.5 also around 5.5? I don't know. But <laughs> looks like it will be a stretch and people won't be convinced if it's around. At this moment, I guess, you know, Q2 is going to be pretty bad. And everything will depend on, you know, how much supporting measures Beijing would like to bring up in the second half. And this is something I think still a big question mark. And given the current trajectory of if they don't do more than they did in 2020, then I guess we will be pretty lucky to have 4%. Yeah, I guess given the current state of play, I mean, restrictions are at a minimum going to be present through April. In all likelihood, I suppose they're going to be present for at least part of May. Uh, and that's assuming that things go quite well. So I guess it's anyone's guess mm. how long it takes to sort of fully normalize activity to where things were before this outbreak. Maybe I guess one question about the growth target itself is that clearly China's economic policy priorities have evolved over the last several years. For the last couple of years, obviously, employment and environmental factors have have risen in importance. But for a very long time, you know, GDP growth was probably the single most important barometer of government officials' you know, success or failure in a given year. Now, sort of at this stage in the pandemic, do you think it's fair to say, at least for the time being, that dynamic zero COVID is probably replaced the GDP growth target as the most important policy target for Chinese officials? Yeah, I think your observation is absolutely correct that Chinese officials are facing a set of targets rather than one. I mean, the days that they only had to achieve high GDP maybe a decade ago, I mean, that was before President Xi and definitely before his second term. Since his second term, the evaluation matrix has become increasingly complex. I mean, there are at least several targets they have apart from the GDP, right? Especially before COVID, they had this poverty alleviation, anti-corruption, environmental protection. You know, these three targets are at least quite important. And last year, of course, they, they started talking about this uh, carbon neutral, carbon peak uh, story. So like, you know, the carbon policies became another thing that, that really matters. And of course, we, we're still waiting for what exactly he means by common prosperity. Of course, now we have also have zero COVID, dynamic zero COVID, right? So, so local governments are really given a lot of targets to reach at the same time. For example, like in this conference Liu He did with a lot of local officials, basically they were told, on one hand, you have to stick to dynamic zero COVID. On the other hand, you cannot just block any truck as you wish because then they screw up our economy, right? And the local officials must think, okay, then how can we do to make sure we don't have local spread of the COVID, and then we allow tra uh, economy to go just as normal, right? It's very hard, right? I mean, some people say it's even mission impossible. So it's like you're trying to do multiple things at the same time. Maybe it's like hack a mole, right? You can focus only on one thing at a time, but the balance quickly changes on weekly or monthly basis. So, but for now, I think, yeah, zero COVID is very important. Probably trumps other areas, but things really change very, very quickly. So it's you still view it as one of many important uh, policy targets, but perhaps when there is an outbreak, it trumps many others, at least in a temporary basis. Yes, yes. Basically, you know, if you're a local government official, you are expected to do everything perfect. So when COVID happens, you do everything you can to just diminish COVID as soon as possible and then affect as fewer people as possible. And then once there's no COVID, you must reopen as fast as possible. Then everything will, should go back to track as fast as possible. So it's like just like a button. Uh, but unfortunately, sometimes uh, you know life doesn't work as a button. Sounds like a very challenging job. Speaking directly about 
zero COVID. I know this is something that many people have their own personal views on, but at least in your baseline, how much longer do you expect China will stick to this policy? And what do you think might be required before a policy change is possible? Well, there is a uh, public health expert I mean, working at the Chinese CDC listing uh, a number of conditions for China to deviate from this uh, dynamic zero COVID. One thing is you have a much better, much more efficient, effective vaccine, higher vaccination rate, and or the vaccine or the virus itself becomes a lot weaker. You no, know, it's not that harmful. Or you have you no know, much better medications, right? So he listed all that. I really think right now, you know, what Beijing is waiting for is really the next variant. It's just waiting for the virus itself to become weaker, maybe just in a few months, because you know, based on the track record over the past two years, it does change every several months, right? So maybe that's it. A lot of people talk about the vaccination rate in China. People point out, oh, the elderly vaccination rate is too low, especially in Shanghai, it's only 60-something. Let's face it, honestly, I don't think they will change the strategy if the vaccination rate for Shanghai elders is over 85%. Right, it's not going to change because the argument is everything multiplied by a billion or 1.4 billion becomes a pretty big number, right? So it doesn't really matter whether the vaccination rate is 80%, 85%, and you're never going to get 100% anyway, right? Because actually, you know, Chinese vaccination rate is pretty high in the world, right? And some people say, oh, this is because you know Chinese vaccines are not as good as mRNA. You know, if you have Pfizer, BioNTech can probably reopen much earlier. Just look at South Korea. I, mean, I think it's very simple. Look at South Korea, look at Singapore. South Korea, the peak reported half a million cases a day. And they all had BioNTech. It's unsinkable, right, if you have a Chinese province, you know, because South Korea's population is basically like a Chinese province, to have half a million cases, or the nationwide, you're going to have five million cases. And again, every small ratio multiplied by five million becomes a pretty horrible number. Right, so they stick to this mindset. I don't think the vaccine type or the vaccination rate really matters. I guess they're just waiting for either this very next variant will be a lot harmful than the current Omicron BA2, and then Beijing will justify zero COVID approach. It will say, "See, we just waited for a few months, and this one is really killing, and by doing that, we save a lot of people." Or the next one become even weaker, even more moderate than this one. And then Beijing can also say, oh, we waited a little bit. We had some hard, hard time. But yeah, that was the right choice because now this is the better time to reopen, right? But now I think they're stuck with this you know, Omicron BA2. This is really the worst scenario. I think this is just a gamble. It's really a gamble that they wait and they wait for things to change. Yeah, it is really a big call when you're talking about such a large population. And I think one thing we know for sure is that when a country or economy does make that decision to open up, there's going to be a huge surge and there's going to be a tremendous amount of infections and a very small number of those people uh, will get very sick and need to go to the hospital. And, you know, that process uh, certainly at the beginning could be very disruptive. It's still a wait and see game, but but maybe the, the question that uh, many listeners might want to know is, at least based on the information that you have at your hand today, how long is that wait and see game going to last? You know, if that is successful, uh, I think they will wait at least till the end of this year. If it's not successful, like they fail, you know, like you know, a lot of other countries with zero COVID policy, you know, failed right at the end because it's just too difficult. Like, you know, Vietnam, Singapore, New Zealand, Australia, they all had zero COVID, right? Right now, only two regions having zero COVID is mainland China and Taiwan. 
right? And I, I think Taiwan is also changing its approach, is no longer pursuing dynamic zero, uh, but it's also not lifting everything, every restriction, uh, so that they want to like make sure the curve is smooth, right? So they don't want to see a big spike in the infections. So I guess China, you know, if they can still control it, they will, they will stick to it. They just wait, they wait for either things get better or worse. So either way, they can justify that. Okay. Well, I guess with that prediction in mind, it uh, might be a good time for us to broaden our discussion beyond the pandemic itself. I guess against the backdrop of all these rising economic challenges, which you know, frankly go well beyond COVID-19 uh, and also include global spillovers from the war in Ukraine and economic sanctions on Russia. And many observers, including myself, have been really quite surprised by the absence of a much more assertive easing of macro policies by Chinese officials. So before we, we sort of dive into the macro policy response and, and get your views on that, would you mind sharing a few thoughts on how the war in Ukraine and the economic sanctions imposed by a number of Western countries on Russia are impacting China's economy? Yeah, I think the good news is so far the impact is not very much, right? Because uh, basically Russia... The only thing Russia matters to China to a big degree is uh, crude oil, right? Even natural gas, you know, Russia sells a little bit to China, uh, but but far less than it sells to Europe. But for crude oil, uh, Russia is China's second largest supplier, only a little bit behind Saudi Arabia. So if China has to stop buying Russian oil, that would be quite significant, but doesn't look like it's happening now. Right. For all the others, I think the, uh, the electronic companies will face some problems because, you know, for example, the, the mobile phones made by Xiaomi, they use Qualcomm chips. And according to the foreign direct product rule by the U.S. Commerce Department, this will never happen again right? because they put Russia on the list. So anyone using U.S. technology or U.S. components should stop selling to Russia. So I guess Xiaomi would have to pull out from Russia, although the company may never make such an announcement. Because right? if you make such an announcement, the feedback from the Chinese social media will be very, very negative. Right? So, so you're never going to see a, a lot of Chinese companies ma- making like a big statement like the Western companies. Right? The, the best thing, I mean, uh, the, the, the most they can do is you know, they, they left, but they, they quietly left. They say no word. So that's probably one impact. But again, like Russia you know, is not a big market for these companies either. Right? It accounts for low single digit of their, market, uh, of their sales. So, so far... I think the impact is pretty uh, limited, and uh, as, I mean, the, the, the big problem is, is what happens with the energy sanctions. Okay, so I guess there's potentially some direct impact on specific companies, as you've mentioned, but at a nationwide level, you think the impact is is pretty minimal. And what about the, I guess, the indirect impact at Fitch? At least we've had to slash our uh, forecast for global growth this year as a result of sort of the, the spillovers from the war and the sanctions. Do you get the sense that that is having an impact on, I guess, perhaps external demand, yeah. net, net trade? Yeah, that's probably going to a factor. I mean, especially we're seeing global central banks rushing to hike rates you know, much more than expected, maybe just one month ago or two months ago, right? I, mean, I just saw news that it's widely expected that Fed will raise rates by 50 bips in two weeks. Right. And now people think ECB will rate rates by about 75 bips by the end of the year, although you know, the, the ECB officials still say no, no, no. Right. So uh, I think we're seeing a pretty big change. 
And with inflation pretty high in the West, the central banks will have to probably sacrifice growth for you know stabilizing inflation. And in that sense, the Chinese exporters may have to suffer. You no, know, especially since the RMB has been very very strong. It's been a little bit too strong this year, right? Compared with other currencies. If that's the case. Then basically, we're seeing the only part of the Chinese economy that's still doing quite well、uh, going to suffer, and and that's certainly very very bad news. So thanks for those perspectives. Let's pivot briefly to economic policy, which I have to say is is really a bit of a puzzle right now, at least for me in China. We've had cuts to the triple R.、Uh, the last one was was pretty modest in size, and we also earlier in this year had a symbolic cut to the the MLF policy rate. Many observers think that the Easing that's been done so far is insufficient to stabilize growth momentum, at least over the near term. Maybe the question for you is, you know, in your assessment, why has policy easing been so restrained so far, and maybe what you expect going forward in light of all of these rising challenges that we've been discussing today? Yeah, I think the key question is what the PBOC can do, what the PBOC thinks it can do to the economy. In China, basically, there is a variety of tools you could use to support the economy. Right, some of that from the PBOC, like you mentioned, you know, the benchmark、uh, policy rates. But then you have these quantitative measures, right? You just look at how much credit banks are giving out every month, and the people calculate this total social finance, and then just, you know, and other measures. Right, and then of course PBOC can also do a little bit of window guidance to the banks, and can also change these macroprudential measures. And the CBIRC, as the banking regulator, can also change its regulations to ease credit conditions. And of course, the local governments also have a lot of power to cut rates, right? Especially on the mortgage front. So I think PBOC is just one of the players in China that can deliver easing policies. And my personal two cents are that PBOC probably felt. Okay, I have done quite a bit since the end of last year. I was one of the earliest to ease policies, and then the rest of you guys have to catch up. You can't just count on me. And maybe there are other reasons that you know there's COVID, right? So whatever measure, easing measure you deliver, it will not help the economy at the moment, right? For example, we've seen quite a lot of easing measures from the、uh, local governments on the housing market, right? Over 100 cities have cut. Uh, mortgage rates and、uh, ease other measures, but still we see、uh, property sales down. Why? I think a key problem is people stuck at home, right? How can they buy、uh, apartments? So I guess maybe PBOC is holding a little bit, and then、uh, it's just waiting for other ministries and other players in the government to start to act. The other concern it has is this、uh, rate hikes from the Federal Reserve. I mean, I, I look at the past. Since 1999, the PBOC has never cut rate after the Fed started to hike. So that's just never happened at all. Just very conservative. You know, one could argue that they don't really have to worry about capital flow. They don't really have to worry about the RMB. Actually, maybe a little bit depreciation is good for the Chinese economy. But I think the PBOC may have a, a trauma. From 2015, 16, a lot of people at the time who were PBOC senior officials are still senior officials now. I think they they really fear that they get blamed if capital outflows、uh, suddenly accelerate if they after they start cutting rates. So they it's just a very very cautious ministry. It's unlike other central banks. It's one of the ministries under the state council. This is again I think needs to be reiterated over and over. Right? It's not just another global central bank. I guess. The hypothesis that I'm sort of 
taking from this discussion is that you know one theory is that it's it's hard to know how to calibrate the extent to which further easing is required because of the Omicron outbreak and because mm. of the, the spillovers that that is having. Would you go as far as, as to say that we essentially need to go revert to a state of the world where there are not the level of restrictions in place now so that the policymakers can figure out where growth momentum is at present? Possibly, and uh, I, I actually think even that, you know, with other external developments, the PBOC may not cut anymore. I mean, my personal view is the PBOC has done cutting rates in this cycle. Yeah. So, what other areas in the toolkit are available if you do not think that there are going to be further uh, cuts to policy rates in China? Yeah, I think they have to keep loosening property policies. You know, not just local government cutting rates and uh, easing restrictions, but also the banks have to lend. But you look at the numbers, mortgage lending year-on-year growth has fallen to all-time low since the series started to be available in the early 2000s. You lower the requirements that you have to, something have to happen, right? We haven't seen the real evidence. Maybe it's a demand issue, maybe it's a supply issue, and I don't really know. If it's a demand issue, then you have to cut more. Maybe some local government even have to start to offer subsidies. If it's a supply issue, then PBOC has to kick the ass of the banks, lend more. I think this is just something inevitable. And of course, infrastructure spending is another thing that Beijing has mentioned several times. And they'll probably offer some subsidies for automobile, home appliance. You know, these are usual suspects uh, when they start easing on the consumption front. Uh, I guess, you know, all of that could probably happen in the next uh, few months. Thank you for those insights. Last question before you go. Uh, many of us, uh, certainly sitting outside of the mainland, were surprised by the extent of the regulatory crackdown on internet-oriented technology platforms last year. Of course, the regulatory changes in private education as well and overseas listing. Where are we in this cycle at present in your own analysis? And are there any specific areas or industries that you're following closely at the moment? I personally tend to believe that we have passed the worst or the trough of the cycle. You know, things should start to get a little bit better at the margin, especially with Liu He making these comments last month. It looks like you know the, the real policy changes are still lagging, right? Even after Liu He made these comments, people were very thrilled. The market rallied by 30% in a day. But now I think they have lost almost half of the rally or over half the rally since then. So people were like, yeah, I, I, would, I would believe your words. If for a few weeks nothing happened, then I stopped believing you. So now I'm also getting a little bit anxious. I'm trying to figure out what exactly they want to do. Because now I think that the diagnose is very correct, right? They, they know demand is weak. They know expectations are also you know, getting worse. You know, these are all true and they know what's going on. So why don't you just, just, just come up with the right measures? Maybe this is something political, right? So uh, now something you know, very obvious to me. Okay, well, well thank you very much uh, for your time today, Long. It's been, uh, it's been great chatting with you and I hope that we can continue the conversation going in the future. Of course, yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here too. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care and until next time.